This week on The Other Side Australia, Brittany Higgins in the witness box. The Greens disgrace themselves yet again. They really are becoming a national embarrassment. Albo and Labor plummet in the news poll last weekend and limp to the end of the year as Peter Dutton finishes on a high. Australia's misinformation bill needs to be tossed out completely as Ireland's Prime Minister says his country needs more social media censorship to stop riots. High school teachers and students in hot water over school strikes and leftist indoctrination claims. And our energy guru, Ben Beattie, joins me to discuss that climate talk fest, COP28. It's a big show. G'day Brisbane, g'day Broome, g'day Launceston and g'day Australia. Welcome to episode 234 of The Other Side Australia for the weekend commencing Friday night, the 1st of December 2023. And I'm Damien Curry. Welcome to the second last show for 2023. I'm looking forward to a break after a very big year. This is the show that lays its bias right out front. We endeavour to present the facts as best we can, but all news and commentary shows are biased and we lean centre-right and classical liberal and we invite you to watch and disagree if you like. We have to bust the echo chambers that we all get our news in these days. But unfortunately, Australia's mainstream media is almost universally centre-left or very left-wing compared to the rest of the world. So we're here to bring you the other side, Australia. And love it or hate it, we hope you'll join us for the fun of thinking a little bit differently. We've reached a new level in the Brittany Higgins, Bruce Learman saga in just the past 24 hours, and it is now very, very serious. Let me explain why this whole thing has just moved from a he said, she said to a very clear and serious problem. Brittany Higgins, in a statutory declaration given to police in 2021, the stat deck is a legal statement that has the weight of evidence, and if you lie on one, it carries the penalty of perjury. In the stat deck, dated February 10, 2021, Brittany states that the photograph of the bruise on her leg, which you may recall was shown on the Spotlight show uh, and also on the project, uh, was caused by Bruce Learman during the rape and sexual assault that occurred in Minister Reynolds' office. That's what she said on, on the statutory declaration. But she has, late this week, said under cross-examination in the defamation civil hearing brought by Bruce Learman against Network 10 and Lisa Wilkinson, she said it could have happened by her falling down the stairs. Wow. Bruce Lerman faced 10 years in jail because of this rape claim. And she seems to have made a false statement on a statutory declaration, which was evidence in her criminal trial. This massive revelation followed a bunch of other things that Brittany corrected and said were mistakes, and in some cases admitted were even lies. So just to back up a bit, what's happening now is not a criminal trial. Okay, it's a civil defamation case. Bruce Lerman is suing Network 10 and Lisa Wilkinson personally for defamation following the project interview in which Higgins accused Lerman of rape without naming him, we should point out, but also without having officially reported any sexual assault or crime to police. 
Now, that interview resulted in charges being laid against Lerman and a criminal trial in Canberra, which was tossed out of court at the very end of things after a juror was found to have brought documents into the jury deliberation room that weren't permitted. So it was tossed out. After that, there was a big inquiry into the handling of the matter between the ACT police and the ACT Director of Public Prosecutions. And that resulted in a scathing report and the DPP resigning. That was all about whether or not there was other reasons why the DPP wanted to bring this case against Lerman and whether Lerman, uh, whether the police believed that there was actually a case there in the first place, that the case was strong enough to actually bring to court, but they did. Now, all of that uh, is separate to what's going on now. This is a civil defamation trial. In a civil defamation trial, you don't have to prove anything beyond a reasonable doubt. You just have to prove it was likely enough to be true. So in this way, the truth does form part of a defence in a defamation trial, and that's why both Lehrman and Higgins have been in the witness box, delivering their very different stories about the night in question. The Australian newspaper reports that Brittany Higgins has admitted lying to Lisa Wilkinson about Bruce Lerman removing her underwear on the night of the alleged rape. The court was played a section of a recording from a pre-interview meeting that Higgins conducted with Wilkinson and a project producer. You may remember that recording was made public by Channel 7's Spotlight program earlier in the year, and we discussed that on this show at the time. In that pre-interview meeting recording, Higgins is heard saying that Lehrman removed her panties before he raped her. Mr. Lehrman's barrister, Stephen Wybrow SC, suggested that this was a lie. Mr. Wybrow said, you agreed with Miss Wilkinson when she asked you whether Mr. Lehrman had removed your underwear. Ms. Higgins replied, yes, it was a conversational tone and I was too embarrassed to admit that I wasn't wearing underwear that night. Mr. Wybrow said, well, that was a lie, wasn't it? Ms. Higgins replied, Yes. The Australian reports that Ms Higgins later interrupted the cross-examination and said she wished to correct the record, saying that while she'd lied to Wilkinson in passing, she had told the truth in other circumstances. I said that I lied about the underwear, but I just want to make it clear that in the interview, I told the truth that I wasn't wearing underwear. To the police, I told the truth that I didn't wear the underwear. And in the criminal proceedings, I told the truth that I didn't wear the underwear. It was in one conversation in passing where I had a lie of omission and I completely pulled my hands up to that. Brittany also admitted portions of a draft chapter in her book were wrong. Her draft of the book was written in April, 2021. She told Bruce Lehrman's lawyer, I was writing a book. It wasn't the same as giving evidence in a courtroom. My evidence in the courtroom was correct. This would have been amended. Mr. Wybrow read out another section of the book that came after a description of the security guard calling into the minister's office. I pulled myself upright, clinging desperately to the leather couch, the draft read. Ms. Higgins said the book was, quote, crap, and my evidence yesterday stands. I know that the security guard called in at nine o'clock in the morning and by nine o'clock in the morning, I know I'd responded to Bruce Dillaway's text and I know at that point, I would have had to have charged my phone and I know I was sick before I charged my phone, she said. So therefore, that couldn't be correct because I know all these other things for a fact. So therefore, the book is incorrect.
The Australian reported other aspects of Brittany Higgins' testimony this week. She said she woke up with Liam and pinning her legs open and having sex with her while on a couch in Linda Reynolds' ministerial suite. She said Lehrman had tried to kiss her at a work event in the weeks prior, that Lehrman treated her like a secretary in the office and was the nicest he'd ever been to her on the night of the alleged rape. She said she had at least 11 drinks on the night of the alleged rape and was, quote, messy and slurring. She said she spent all weekend in her bedroom after the alleged rape and didn't tell anyone about it until the Monday after. And she said she gave incorrect evidence in the criminal trial around how long she spent in a bathroom while having a panic attack after being called into a meeting with Senator Reynolds and Fiona Brown, her bosses, in the ministerial suite following the alleged rape. And she promised to donate any money she gets through any future book deals above and beyond her original book deal to charity. But all of that pales into insignificance when you consider this latest very, very serious revelation of a statement being made in a statutory declaration that the bruise on her leg was definitely caused by a rape, and now her saying in court that it could have been from tripping up the stairs. In the interests of all genuine rape victims and to protect all men against false accusations, an example will need to be set here by our criminal justice system. I'm afraid the authorities must consider this a potential case of perjury and they must take the appropriate action. Bruce Learman has vehemently and consistently denied raping Brittany Higgins. Now we can say in general terms, separate from the specific case, that I think we need to strike a better balance in Australia between protecting the presumption of innocence, protecting men against false accusations of sexual crimes, which does happen, and protecting alleged victims from having to give evidence in excruciating detail about things they probably reasonably would not be able to remember. It's something I hope we can explore on this show more next year. But sadly, way too many people in our society have tied this stuff up with sexual politics and politics more broadly. And that's very dangerous and very irresponsible. We have a problem we need to resolve somehow. People are too quick to either believe all alleged victims and insist that those alleged victims be assumed to be telling the truth and be handled too gently by the courts, which completely kills the presumption of innocence, by the way, and does risk lots of wrongful convictions. Now, people do make mistakes, and some people do actually lie, and some people have mental issues and make stuff up and think they're telling the truth, or others other people are too quick to presume that the accusers are lying and are motivated by other things. And so they have little sympathy for the accuser, who may well be a true victim. It's difficult stuff. Somehow we've got to put our big boys and girls pants on and stop being childish and political about it, put those views aside, strive for compassion, have patience and let things play out, because we simply cannot and must not ever lower the burden of proof for convicting someone of a serious crime. But we also need to soften the journey for genuine rape victims somehow so that they get justice without compounding their trauma. As I said, a conversation for 2024, I think. But I just say this too. How many men have had their lives destroyed by false accusations and bad courts and media hype? 
I wonder how Christian Porter is spending Christmas this year. Well, there's going to be no turning back for the Greens now on Palestine or any issue relating to the more radical elements of Australia's Islamic population. They have 110% put their far left wing flag firmly in the camp of supporters of the containment or elimination of Israel. An article on the online opinion news site Crikey this week had this enlightened headline. As anger towards Labor grows over Gaza, will the Greens become the default party for migrants? You've got to love the way left-wing media writers think, haven't you? Migrants all apparently think the same way. Or if they don't, they damn well should, according to those who love identity politics. Clearly, you couldn't possibly be a pro-Israel migrant or a conservative migrant or even a moderate classical liberal migrant. Nope. According to Crikey, all migrants are left-wing voters to be divided between Labor and the Greens. Anyway, this spectacular piece of university-grade journalism covered a meeting that was held by the Greens in Western Sydney's Granville Town Hall. The newspaper article noted that the Greens often had trouble getting any actual locals to turn up to their meetings in Western Sydney, but that since the party's calls for a permanent ceasefire in Palestine and an end to Israel's, quote, occupation of Gaza and the West Bank, unquote, migrant communities that have overwhelmingly voted Labor for decades may be shifting their allegiances. The article says about 70 people turned out on a rainy Friday morning to hear federal Greens leader Adam Bant. Geez, you'd have to be desperate, wouldn't you, for entertainment on a Friday morning? And New South Wales Upper House Greens MP David Shoebridge. I told you it was university-grade journalism. David Shoebridge isn't a New South Wales Upper House Greens MP, crikey. He's a senator, a federal senator. What a double billing that would have been, hey? David Shoebridge and Adam Bant. Almost a three-digit IQ going on there, if you add the two together. Well, crikey says that the meeting was attended by the Palesti Palestine Action Group, the Palestinian Christians Australia, Western Sydney for Palestine, and the General Union of Palestinian Workers, representatives and members of the Bangladeshi Community Council, the Australian Pakistani Women's Association, South Asian Social Justice Group, the Humanism Project, and the Federation of Italian Migrant Workers and Families. There are only 70 people there. How many organisations could be represented? Palestine Action Group organiser and Greens member Amal Nasser told Crikey that when it comes to deciding who to vote for, Obviously, the coalition is a much worse option, but Labor has dehumanized our people and engaged in Islamophobia as well. So a lot of people are discovering or rediscovering how the Greens have supported people in Western Sydney, not just on Palestine, but on other issues. Crikey also notes that Greens Senator Marine Faruqi was the only politician on the speaker's list at the school strike for Palestine rally that marched through the Sydney CBD on Friday afternoon. Crikey says, right-wing media outlets and liberal politicians have attacked Faruqi as anti-Semitic for posting a photo from the rally in which a handmade protest sign depicts the Israeli flag being put into a bin. This is one of those moments when I'm so very, very proud to call myself right-wing, even though the left seem to think it's automatically a put-down. There's actually nothing wrong with being right-wing or conservative, especially these days. It's normal, in fact, although consuming Australian media or listening to our government propaganda, you'd never know it. 
Anyway, I can't for the life of me begin to imagine why anyone on the crazy right-wing media would want to criticise any politician who posted this lovely photo on Twitter. I mean, it's just a happy snap of the delightful Senator Faruqi there, representing her fine citizenship and the fine citizenship of the Greens party generally, and standing beside a few sweet teenage girls, wagging school because they so desperately and deeply care and understand, of course, all the complexities of the Israel-Palestine issue. Oh, oh wait, hang on. What's that sign the girl on the right of the senator is holding? What does that say? Keep the world clean. Oh, well that's sweet. She thinks she's at a climate change rally. How cute. Oh, wait on. What's that image being tossed into the bin there? Oh, that's the Israeli flag. So this would be a sign calling for genocide, for the complete disposal of Israel, tossing Israel in the bin. I guess such a sweet poster would be easy to miss if you're a federal Australian senator taking a picture. It's not like Maureen posted that picture on her own official green social media pages or anything. Oh wait, she did post it on her social media. On X Twitter, in fact, she proudly posted it. So she must have had plenty of time and opportunity to clearly notice the sign that she was standing beside. But how dare the right-wing media and liberal politicians get upset about this? Thank God we have the fine journalism of crikey.com to save us all. But seriously, folks, this is an absolute disgrace. Could you imagine for one minute what would happen to a Liberal or National Party or One Nation or UAP or Libertarian Party politician if they were photographed standing next to a sign that said, keep the world clean with an Islamic country's flag or religious symbol being tossed in a bin? They would rightly be admonished and the media and Labor and the Greens would be calling for their immediate sacking. The double standards and hypocrisy here are truly sickening. If you're right wing in Australia, you cannot move or speak without risking being cancelled for the slightest slip up. But if you're left wing, well, you can say whatever you like and you're immune from any criticism or censure. Actually, I think we have a copy of the press release that was issued by Adam Bant as leader of the Greens party on this matter, distancing himself from Senator Faruqi and admonishing her actions. Have we, uh, have we got that, guys? Oh, it, it, it doesn't exist. Oh, what a surprise. Some members of the Jewish community decided to take matters into their own hands and cleverly protested outside Senator Faruqi's office, standing in garbage bins marked, is this where I belong? And holding placards that read, Maureen, your office is ethnically cleansed now. Well done, guys. Think about what happened to Victorian State MP Moira Deeming when she attended a rally for women's rights against the radical trans movement in Melbourne. Some neo-Nazis showed up and did salutes. They had nothing to do whatsoever with Ms. Deeming. They were nowhere near her. But she got kicked out of the Parliamentary Liberal Party in a gutless, weak move by the gutless, weak Victorian State Liberal Opposition Leader, John Pizzuto. But Federal Senator Maureen Faruqi, who actually stood beside and posted this grossly offensive, actually Nazi-like image? Ah, no worries. She's a green. She's on the kind and compassionate side of politics. Not a peep in the mainstream media condemning her beyond a few conservative news outlets. And this isn't the delightful Marine's first provocative tweet. Oh no, she has quite the history 
for stirring up controversy. Almost like she's doing it on purpose, perhaps. Back when the government announced it would light up the Opera House, blue and white, to honour those killed in the October 7 Hamas terror attacks, Marine tweeted, quote, One colonial government supporting another. What a disgrace. Seriously. And even the passing of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth wasn't a moment for this delightful Australian senator to just so, show some class, show some decorum and good character and remain silent. Oh no. When the Queen died, Marine tweeted, condolences to those who knew the Queen. I cannot mourn the leader of a racist empire built on stolen lives, land and wealth of colonized peoples. Right, because no wealth or wisdom or anything went the other way, of course. And colonialism wasn't bound to happen or anything as a natural period in history. Honestly, folks, this woman is totally insufferable and she is unfit to serve in a local council, let alone as a senator in our national parliament. I don't know what the voters of New South Wales were thinking at the last federal election, but thank you for giving us this one. I dare say they didn't know what they were voting for. And herein lies the problem. The Greens are not an environmental party. They are a radical far left socialist party with some members who are full blown communist authoritarians. And while they are totally allowed to run for office in our great democracy, it is very important that we as citizens know what and who we are really voting for. And that is our responsibility, each and every one of us as adult citizens. But the Greens' support is trending in the opposite direction to what it should be trending. As Labor nosedived in the latest Australian news poll released this week, the Greens are up a tiny tick. Here's the news poll chart for the primary vote. That means the number of people who put a particular party as their first preference by putting a one beside them on the ballot. And you can see the huge nosedive that Labor has taken in just the past three weeks where I've put the purple arrow there. Labor are obviously the red line. A big four percentage point decline from 35 to 31%. That's lower than it was before the last election for the first time. That is really a seriously massive drop since the last news poll on November the 3rd, and it spells big trouble for Elbow and his crew. The Liberal National Coalition is the blue line. They've hit 38% primary vote, the highest level that they've had since the election. So that's very good news for Peter Dutton, who's really hitting goals at the moment. Now, look down at the bottom of the chart. That's where all the minor parties are. And you'll see the Greens, obviously the green line, just taking a little tiny tick up. So they've obviously picked up some of Labor's decline, probably the young people, but this is bad news. Seriously, this party should be plummeting. Yet, weirdly, it still manages to hover around 10% of the primary vote. One in 10 Australians still think it's smart to put the Greens first in an election. Now, One Nation is the orange line, steady on 6% there, and the grey line is all the other minor parties, now on 12%. So, around 30% of Aussies abandoning our two major parties, which should be a wake-up call to those major parties, that they are increasingly out of touch with middle Australia. Now, if you allocate preferences of the minor parties to the major parties based on the way that preferences flowed in the last election, 
and that's how the pollsters work these things out, you will see the two-party preferred vote, which tells us who would actually win an election, and it is now sitting at 50-50 for the first time in three and a half years, neck and neck. So again, Elbow really needs to lift his game, especially on the economy, otherwise this government will certainly be one-termers. Thank God the government, bruised and battered from the fight on The Voice, has seen the light and shelved that awful misinformation and disinformation bill, the proposed internet and free speech censorship laws, until next year. Here's a little tip, Elbow. Shelve it forever. In fact, take it out to the Parliament House incinerator and burn it. You do not have the political capital to even try to get this through. And if you think the campaign waged by liberal democratic free-minded Aussies against your sick attempt to put race into our constitution was scary, you haven't seen anything yet. The forces against this censorship bill on both the left and the right of politics will be unleashed in an, a way that you have never seen in this country. And your political career will be toast and your political party will be relegated to history. The national director of the United Australia Party, Craig Kelly, was one of the first to push against these proposed laws. And he told Topher Field from the Aussie Wire platform this week that the laws were originally Liberal Party legislation and it's only been since the change of government that the Liberals have joined the minor parties in opposing the laws. Now, the Liberals were very Johnny-come-latelys to this. It's only when they saw, saw several of us in the minor parties really jump up, in, up and down on this. I remember when it first came out, the, the Liberal Minister said, oh, he had some concerns, you know. You should have read it in about the first 30 seconds and gone, this is rubbish, I'm going to die in a ditch to oppose this. That's where you should have been hmm. instead of just had some concerns about it. But, but where, this, where this actually goes back to, if you remember during the COVID period, we, we found this out from freedom of information requests. We had the Department of Health in this country spying on my, as an elected member of parliament, spying on my social media posts mm -hmm. and sending off our demands to Twitter that I'd be suspended from that platform. Mm. A, a clear breach of parliamentary privilege, a breach, yeah, misfeasance, malfeasance, the whole lot to try and interfere with the communications of an elected member of parliament. Yeah. That's what the Department of Health was doing. And here's the thing. Twitter came back because I was very careful what I posted, so I needed to have my Twitter, but the only access really I had was I'd been cancelled on Facebook. Mm. Twitter wrote back to the Department of Health and said, no, he hasn't broken any of our rules. We are not going to censor him. Now, but if that new legislation, if that mis misinformation, disinformation legislation had gone through, well, the Department of Health would have been able to write out, we don't care what your rules are. We are telling you that you need to censor him, right, because we are writing the rules and we have deemed what he has said as misinformation. And if you don't censor him, you have a free choice to censor him or not, but if you don't, it'll be a $100 million fine. That's Craig Kelly speaking to Topher Field on his Aussie Wire platform last week. Even the Australian Human Rights Commissioner, Lorraine Finlay, wrote back in August in an opinion piece for The Australian that this bill would cause more problems than it would fix. She noted then that fake news is not a modern phenomenon. Misinformation has been spread for political gain since Octavian used fake news to discredit Mark Antony in ancient Rome, she wrote. Australia needs to address the risks of misinformation, she claims. 
But she says this needs to be balanced with ensuring that we don't unduly affect freedom of expression. I couldn't agree more with that, but I disagree that we need government to address the risks in any way whatsoever. We can, through technology itself, manage things. X, the Elon Musk platform, formerly known as Twitter, has a system called Community Notes, by which a broad and politically diverse crowdsourced bunch of users contribute to flagging stuff that might be wrong based on facts, not on opinions or politics or manipulation. But back to the Human Rights Commissioner. In a surprising moment of clarity and common sense for somebody in that job, Lorraine Finlay outlines four key issues that she has with the misinformation or disinformation laws proposed. First, the vagueness of the terms used. How exactly do you define the terms misinformation, disinformation and harm? Laws targeting misinformation and disinformation require clear and precise definitions. I would also add who, Lorraine, who gets to do the defining? I'd suggest this problem is unsolvable and that's why we should never have any such laws ever. But even the Human Rights Commissioner realises the truth that is obvious to everyone who's not a raving left winger. That quote, drawing a clear line between truth and falsehood is not always simple. And there may be legitimate differences in opinion as to how content should be characterised. The broad definitions used here risk enabling unpopular or controversial opinions or beliefs to be subjectively labelled as misinformation or disinformation and censored as a result. Yep, it's not rocket science to smart people on the political right, but a revelation to those on the left apparently that their view of the world could ever possibly be wrong. The second key problem the Commissioner has woken up to is that we don't have a great definition of what harm is. I mean, nobody on the left has abused that one for political reasons lately, have they? I need a safe space. You've invalidated me and harmed my feelings. You misgendered me. I need five days off work immediately. The Commissioner, in her quite surprising wisdom, notes that the categories of harm themselves are extremely broad, including things like harm to the health of Australians and harm to the Australian environment. Reasonable people may have very different views about what constitutes harm under those categories. No kidding, Sherlock Holmes. I really shouldn't pick on her because she's saying the right things, but it is really amusing when the public servant bigwigs start to preach as if it's all a revelation. You know, we've been saying this for years, Lorraine. Thanks for catching up there. Her third concern, number three, is that the draft bill defines any content that is authorised by the government, I love this bit, as being excluded content. God, anything you say could be misinformation, but if it's coming from us, the government, then it must be true. Seriously, who was the Einstein that wrote that, thinking it's going to pass the pub test? These public servants are often rather daft, aren't they? As the commissioner has amazingly realised. Quote, this means government information cannot by, by definition be misinformation or disinformation under the law. Correct. And it also means anything reported on the ABC and SBS would be exempt. So that's very, very fair to the rest of us in the media. Brilliant. And finally, the fourth concern that the Human Rights Commissioner has in her mm, amazing red pill moment, number four, relates to 
powers to regulate digital content that would be given to the platforms themselves, like Facebook and, and the Googles of the world. YouTube, which belongs to Google, and China's TikTok. I mean, what could possibly go wrong there? And also, she says, we should be worried about the massive power that it gives to ACMA, the Australian Communications and Media Authority, an organisation which, in my rarely humble opinion, also should already be disbanded because of the risk of it acting like a government censor against opinions it doesn't like and crushing our free speech. But you don't have to take it from centre right wing classical liberal old white guy like me. Listen to the wisdom of our Human Rights Commissioner, a woman, a bureaucrat, an academic, bursting with woke. She says, quote, there are inherent dangers in allowing any one body, whether it be a government department or social media platform, to determine what is and is not censored content. The risk here is that efforts to combat misinformation and disinformation could be used to legitimise attempts to restrict public debate and censor unpopular opinions. Surprise! So there you have it. Now, as wonderful as it is that someone with uh, that credential who heads up an organisation as woke and worrisome as the Human Rights Commission has finally woken up to, or at least can see, the problems of this terrible, terrible proposed law. It strikes me as very amusing that someone in her position thinks that these four observations are some kind of brilliant insight. I'm going to assume she's keeping it simple for the lefties and public bureaucrats that she has to manage. But the reality is that all four of those points are obvious as the light of day to anyone with half a brain and to what politicians in the Senate minor parties, the sensible minor parties, sorry, have been saying for ages. Remember the backlash against the proposed new media council that Julia Gillard tried to introduce a decade ago? Why would they be so silly as to try such nonsense again? Well, it seems strangely coincidental that every democratic country on earth right now has got some kind of shutdown on free speech laws before their parliaments. For example, the Irish Prime Minister's way of handling the recent tensions in the Republic's capital, Dublin, between locals and immigrants that flared up a week or so ago, his way of handling it is to clamp down on free speech online and bring in tougher social media censorship laws. It's not that there's a real underlying issue around too fast, too full on immigration policies. Oh no, it's the social media. We've got to clamp down on your free speech. Yeah, it's for peace and stability, yeah, to be sure, to be sure. In case you missed it, anti-immigrant protesters rampaged through central Dublin just over a week ago after three young children were stabbed allegedly by a rogue immigrant outside of school. Police arrested 34 people after the rioting, in which 500 people looted shops, set fire to vehicles, and threw rocks at crowd control officers. Here's how the UK's Channel 4 saw it. Amidst the rumours, one thing's for sure. Last night, Dublin burned. Rage clearly directed at the police, looting, on the surface, an archetypal riot. So where did it start and why? There was a knife attack yesterday afternoon outside a primary school. Three children were stabbed. One of them, a five-year-old girl, was critically injured. Two adults are also still in hospital. The incident likely a catalyst for the rioting. Very quickly online, far-right leaders ramped up the rhetoric, describing the attacker as a foreigner, blaming immigration. Ireland's Taoiseach, or Prime Minister, Leo Varadkar, says Ireland's capital had endured two attacks, one on innocent children 
and the other on, quote, our society and the rule of law. The Irish PM, described as conservative and centre-right, made this statement following the attack and the riots. Yesterday, we experienced two terrible attacks. The first was an attack on innocent children. The second, an attack on our society and the rule of law. Each attack brought shame to our society and disgrace to those involved and incredible pain to those caught up in the violence. As Taoiseach, I want to say to a nation that is unsettled and afraid, this is not who we are, this is not who we want to be, and this is not who we will ever be. Yesterday afternoon, innocent children were attacked outside the Gael Kaloshta were in Dublin city centre. Yesterday evening, some people decided that the best way to respond to this terrible attack was to take to the streets of Dublin and try to terrify, intimidate, loot and destroy. Their first reaction to a five-year-old child being stabbed was to burn our city, attack its businesses and assault our Gardaí. As a result of their actions, buses and trams were set on fire, innocent passers-by were intimidated and pregnant women in Rotunda Hospital were made feel unsafe and in danger. These people claim to be defending Irish citizens, yet they put in danger the newest and most vulnerable and most innocent people. Those involved brought shame on Dublin, brought shame on Ireland, and brought shame on their families and themselves. These criminals did not do what they did because they love Ireland. They did not do what they did because they wanted to protect Irish people. They did not do it out of any sense of patriotism, however warped. They did so because they're filled with hate. They love violence, they love chaos, and they love causing pain to others. Looting a shop was more important to them than protecting the lives of our children. That's the Irish Prime Minister, or Taoiseach and Gaelic, uh, rightly condemning rioters in Dublin. The Gardaí, the Irish police, called the rioters lunatics, and the media had a meltdown calling them far-right racists. But like all protests, they don't spring out of nowhere. The reality is more complex. Lots of everyday, sensible, law-abiding Irish citizens, like many around the world, have genuine and valid concerns about too much, too fast immigration policies. And unless they are listened to, rather than just being called lunatics or deplorables, and bunched in with rioters and looters and far-right and far-left racists, then the real ignorant extreme racists will get out of control. London's GB News Channel commentators Andrew Doyle and Ella Whelan addressed that issue in a discussion this week. Firstly, going on a, a riot and setting things on fire, that's not a sensible response to anything, and that should be said. Um, but also, if the media and the police are going to be smearing the entire group of people as far right, won't that heighten resentment? Yeah, it will. And I mean, Brendan O'Neill wrote for Spiked um, a few days ago talking about the fact that these people were called lunatics, you know, so, which is, you know, it might have been just a throwaway word by the Guardi, but I don't think it was. It was a kind of, you know, these, you have to be sort of mentally ill to not go along with the official line yes. of, and it has been nauseating actually listening to, um, in particular, British uh, media coverage of what, was, you know, getting all these people from disinformation units in Ireland, academics or yes. Aliyah Varadkar also sort of defining this as sort of a saying 
it's us and them. In fact, actually, Fintan O'Toole wrote an article over the weekend saying, Irish commentator saying, there's the us who are, we love immigrants. There's no problem. We're a nation of immigrant lovers and, and don't, just don't talk about it. And then there's them, these awful oiks who hate immigrants. And again, I mean, you wish that they'd get outside of the, yeah. um, the little area in Dublin and know that actually there are some tensions in relation to immigration. And no, they're not, not everybody's not far right. But there are, there have been incidents in Ireland in which the discussion about immigration has been, much like it has here, just totally clamped down on. There seems to be a mirroring that, here. I mean, there's a lot, this idea of an, an elite political class who are completely out of touch with what's actually going on. Hmm. And they're just projecting this idea of how they would like things to be. Yep. Ireland mirroring the UK and Australia and Canada and New Zealand and the United States and most of Europe. Well, the idea that it's simply an organised far-right outburst um, is a total misunderstanding of the complexity of what's been going on. Yeah. Anyone who looks at what these uh, people did in that evening, looting, footlocker, setting things on fire, as Cressler said at the beginning of the show, you know, a lot of it is just uh, idiot behaviour. That's opportunity. You know, it's, yeah, it's the kind of thing, you know, the kind of thing that happened in the London riots um, in, you know, a few years back here where, you know, people take an opportunity and they do stupid things and there's not necessarily anything too... Uh, dramatically political about that. But but there is something that happened and and it, there's a kind of a, melt, a, a boiling sort of pot thing going on here, which is that the way in which the incident was reported um, of the two little girls being stabbed and the care worker and the whole thing that happened, um, the Irish Museum, Irish Times, leapt on the uh, opportunity to say this was somebody who was a naturalised citizen, he'd been here for 20 years, you know, there was almost, you could almost feel the sort of tension in the Irish media elite saying, don't go there on the immigrant question, don't yes. go there, even though Dublin is a small town, it's <laughs> a city, and uh, word had spread that what this person looked like, and so there, there quite quickly became this sort of tension of they're not telling us the truth. Right. They're not. They are. They're. They're lying. You know. They're going to spin this a certain way, um, and I think that has been a large part of what fed into the outburst of anger. Yes, it's much more complex than just social media is the problem. What social media does is make it harder for the authorities to put the lid on the real underlying issues. They have to face up to them. And in this case, we need to be facing up to the fact that people, perhaps very rightly, don't like too fast immigration. They don't like losing their sense of a core culture. And they don't like immigrants not being required to integrate and assimilate to a certain extent. All of these things do not make someone a racist. Most people are very welcoming of immigrants who respect the country they come to. And most immigrants do respect their new homelands. But some do not. And it's right for a society, society to expect that they should. That is not racism. In any case, clamping down on social media free expression is not going to fix the problem. Only actually fixing the core problem will fix the core problem. Are you paying attention, Elbow? Well, high school kids are suddenly experts on Middle East politics. That wonderful bastion of sensible debate, CBS Network 10's The Project, Rove McManus's greatest gift to television, reported it this way. As hundreds of teenagers in Melbourne today skipped class and took to the streets, joining a rally for Palestine. People are dying for no reason. Free, free Palestine! Free, free Palestine! 
Politicians on both sides calling for the students to stay in school. If you want to change the world, get an education, and that means going to school. If our numeracy and literacy rates were through the roof, then it'd be a different story. But I think this is an indulgence. I think it's a political statement. Then the project decided to interview one of the very well-informed and intellectually superior 16-year-olds involved in the marches. And just in case you missed it, it was really something special. Ivy, why did you choose to skip class and strike today? Well, how can we go to school and do our work um, when there's a genocide happening in Palestine? Stop. No, there is not a genocide happening in Palestine. Stop using highly emotional terms you heard on TikTok. Understand what the word means before you throw it around. There is a war happening in Palestine following a hideous terrorist attack from Gaza's government, Hamas, elected by the people of Gaza in 2005 to lead them. Now, you might think that Israel should put the lives of its own soldiers at risk by not bombing Gaza heavily to destroy the tunnels and disorient Hamas fighters, and you can say so, and you can protest that. But you can't call anything genocide. We are funding um, Israel's murder towards Palestinians with our own taxpayer dollars, the same taxpayer dollars that are funding our education. Stop. You can't spend the same money twice, all right? That's basic economics, sweetie. All right, Australia sells... Oh, I'll probably get in trouble for calling a sweetie, won't I? Okay, that's a uh, young lady, young woman, young, brilliant human, oh, whatever. Anyway, Australia sells arms to Israel. We don't give Israel any foreign development aid. We don't need to because Israel is a functioning, productive country. On the contrary, we give about $70 million in aid every year to the Palestinian territories, which include Gaza. The Labor government also announced an additional $10 million of your tax money in humanitarian aid for Gaza on October 14, and another $15 million on October 24. Meanwhile, Hamas's leaders sit in Qatar, living like kings with billions in the bank. But it's good to know where our taxes are going, isn't it? And of course, if you think that money is being monitored and we actually know where it is going, well, you're kidding yourselves. But carry on, you're 16 years old, so you clearly know more than any adult in the room. How can we, you know, sit back and just let this all happen? I mean, as a socialist, I want to fight for every single person who is oppressed by this horrible capitalist system. Oh, and there it is. Capitalism is to blame. She's not a pro-Palestine campaigner. She's your typical exploited 16-year-old student. Exploited by who? By the scumbags in the leftist movement. The Socialist Alliance. The Greens. Maybe even her own teachers. Who knows? But generally, the left. And there's nobody, no adult, prepared to step up and explain to this kid that her worldview is based on one very dumb and very bad idea that will just not seem to die. Bloody Marxism. Very broad comments you made there. Um, obviously, the genocide claim would be fiercely contested by uh, Israel and people who are sympathetic to Israel's situation. You talk about your opposition to capitalism. Does this mean you'd be protesting things more broadly, that we would see you starting to protest all kinds of things that you think are connected with capitalism and missing school for those things as well? Well, absolutely. I mean, look back just last week, I was at the climate strike um, on Friday. Of course she was. She's a climate science expert too. Super smart kid. I mean, she probably is a super smart kid. I mean, her parents must be uh, so proud of this political take. I've been reading this sort of stuff for years. 
And it's not just about what you read, it's about what you do with that knowledge and how you utilise it. So we've all come together, masses of students, passionate and powerful. We are saying no to funding Israel's genocide to Palestine. Ivy, we can see your passion, we can hear your passion. The opposition leader, though, has called what you're doing an indulgence and said that if your numeracy and literacy rates in schools were better, maybe it would be a different story. What do you say to that? Well, he hasn't read my report card. <laughs> and it's not lacking. I don't want to be cocky, but I have, I have spare time and I can use this spare time and my voice and my knowledge. Yeah, the opposition leader was talking about general literacy and numeracy problems. He wasn't talking about you personally, but you know, that generation, everything's me, me, me. Now, what you got here is a kid who cares about the world and she's willing to take an interest in things and read a bit. So good on her for that. But what she needs is an adult or a number of adults around her to guide her, at least to show her that these issues are very complex and teach her that she needs to look at what other people are saying, people other than the far, far left predators, and that's what they are, they're predators, that somehow have got into her head. I'd like to know what the schools are doing. But as the IPA revealed in its survey we spoke about on the show last week, our teacher training in Australia is in a massive mess itself. The IPA found that half the courses available to people studying to become a teacher were rooted in identity politics, critical race theory and gender studies. And very few courses related to numeracy and literacy. So the teachers themselves have been brainwashed by leftist nonsense. So what hope do we have for our kids that they're teaching? It's a mess. And it's little wonder that this poster emerged this week too. Teachers and school staff for Palestine. Week of action. Solidarity with Palestine. And then down the bottom it says for the location in your school. Now in case you think this is an unofficial thing that didn't go anywhere, it was endorsed by the inner city and Maribyrnong regions of the Australian Education Union Victoria branch. Hooray. When did we invite teachers and school staff to bring their ignorant, ill-informed political views into the school environment? If ever there was an ad for forcing schools back to the three R's, or even better, a free market education system that funds parents with vouchers instead of funding schools, then this is it. By funding parents and letting them choose which schools will get their voucher money, the schools would have to compete for students, thereby serving the parents and the students as they should, rather than the needs of teachers and bureaucrats. That's not a criticism of good teachers. Good teachers would end up being paid more, and the bureaucrats in the education departments that make teachers' lives hell by not letting them teach and drowning them in paperwork would be out of a job. And radical leftist teachers' unions would be unnecessary, because schools would be competing for the best teachers and paying them handsomely. But I digress, forgive me. I'm just fantasizing like a sad old classical liberal again about how great the world might be if it weren't for bureaucrats. The talk fest known as the COP Summit is on again, number 28. This is the United Nations annual climate summit, the big powwow on global warming. This time it's in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. US President Joe Biden isn't attending. He sent John Kerry, his special envoy for climate change, instead in the big jet that they'll be chewing up all the fuel in. 
Biden's been to every one of these climate talk fests since he took office. Leaders from nearly 200 countries will go. The Wall Street Journal says that earlier this month, Biden referred to climate change as, quote, the only existential threat to humanity. We either get this right or there's not going to be a whole lot of people around to talk about it, he opined while in San Francisco at APEC with Albo a few weeks back. I reckon it's not really that important if he isn't attending. I reckon he might be overstating the climate threat just a tiny bit there, calling it the only existential threat to humanity. Anyway, joining us now to discuss all of this is uh, host of the Australian Energy podcast, the Baseload podcast, and intrepid engineer, Ben Beatty, a long-time regular on the other side of Australia. Um, ben, we know that Biden isn't going. Albo certainly wouldn't dare step out of the country again this year, but who is the Australian delegation that's going and what's our message to COP going to be? I think uh, amongst a, a flurry of the politicians and lobbyists, the main interest items for me are Chris Bowen, our climate and energy minister, uh, and an interesting young chap called Will Shackle who pops up here and there, and he's also going to be in Dubai. Uh, it's, it's an interesting situation in COP28 because we've recently had some agreements signed between the UK and the US to triple their nuclear capacity by 2050. Um, and when you think when you say US and UK and nuclear, the the most often the biggest connection is submarines. So the AUKUS agreement, uh, you've got Australia sitting in the middle of that, absolutely refusing to take on nuclear power, which is a really, I think it's a bit of a, a tough situation for Mr. Bowen. So you have Mr. Bowen on the ABC TV just the other day saying he's going to take to COP28 uh, arguments that he wants them to strengthen. Uh, emissions reduction targets yeah. uh, and he wants to have uh, less flowery speeches about it meanwhile the unofficial delegation consists of will shackle uh <laughs> who's who's going along Good to spruik nuclear power uh, i'd like to see them in the same room together i think it'd be interesting the last time they did was on q a and one of the audience polls that the or sorry viewer polls at the abc uh did over the course of that episode something like 60% of viewers were in favour of nuclear power. So I think Mr Bowen is going to struggle in, in that environment when the yeah. whole world is largely heading yeah. towards nuclear power and he's sort of going the opposite way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm just baffled by the way that the Australian government is handling this. I mean, we're heading towards net zero at an alarming speed. We're spending billions on wind and solar and in many cases, we've got no transmission lines built yet to get the energy where it needs to go. Um, we're building these battery farms, which I guess will help a bit with baseload power, but only a tiny bit, um, very small. And now in Dubai, they're discussing whether to issue a statement on phasing out fossil fuels completely. That is what is on the table at COP. I mean, are we getting uh, any closer Ben, do you think, to knowing how we're going to meet our baseload power needs into the future as we just phase out coal and gas, or if we're going to be able to do it without nuclear? Wind and solar, um, it, it averages across the year about 20 or 30% of our needs, so we need, I guess, at least 70 to 80% coming from fossil fuels, right? But there are other periods throughout the days and months and years where up to 90% of our electricity demand is still supplied by coal and gas. Now, this is, a, this is a problem for the wind and solar advocates because they always talk about it in terms of the 
average output or the app or the total output over a year. Now, no no system in the world is designed based on averages or yeah. total amounts, unless you maybe maybe a dam talking about the total amount of the dam. But if you if you talk to someone about building a bridge, they're talking about peak loads, peak traffic. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you've got to build the infrastructure for the peak, not for the average, right? This is the little bit of misinformation that comes through from the, the renewables lobby uh, and the advocates. And another one is the t- cost of this supposed system that's meant to replace these fossil fuels sometime in the future, maybe by 2050, uh, if, they, if they get enough money thrown at it. So my te- my background I'm, I'm an electrical engineer technically you could do it if you didn't care about the money or people's livelihoods or the land or the environment so you could you could technically build enough batteries you could build enough pumped hydro you could build enough transmission lines you could have so much wind and solar that it would magically charge it up over time uh, and you could theoretically do it and there's been a few people who say that it's a lot easier than that but it's actually not. They, they skip yeah. over whole big tracts of the problem. Yeah, they certainly do. Um, ben, wind and solar uh, also just can't ramp up as required from the demand from customers at peak times and then ramp down at quiet times, right? The way wind and solar work on the grid is that they have a, a model for each wind farm and each solar farm. And the, the Australian energy market operator, AMO, uses that model for each wind farm to determine what the output for that wind farm should be for every five minute period and it tells them to do it and they generally do it even though there's some errors in it now unfortunately that makes much of the system ramping up and down depending on the weather and that has very very little to do with our demand how we use electricity how the industries ramp up uh how we get home at night and you know more more and more people are plugging in electric vehicle charges now so that's an extra source of demand on the grid, which is not going to be met by wind and solar. Uh, there's going to be periods where it can't possibly be. The advocates think that batteries will do this. And yes, there are larger and uh, more complex batteries coming onto the market. Uh, not all of them have caught fire yet, by the way, but a few have. <laughs> and uh, unfortunately, I should say. But what you're what you're looking at is batteries that have next to no impact on the market. Uh, the capacity is minuscule compared to the grid, and I can I can safely say it's just not going to work. Um, that's why the government is spending a lot of money trying to subsidise hydrogen into existence, and they think that'll that'll be the big gap filler in a, in the energy as we turn off coal and gas. Uh, but there's there's no way, and around the world we're seeing the same things. Anywhere that the wind and solar is pushed via subsidies um, into the market, the You've got very high prices, and you're also getting deindustrialization. Uh, people are leaving California for many reasons, but one of them is the high electricity costs, high cost of living. Germany is similar. We just had Volkswagen uh, announce they're going to downscale their workforce as well. Yeah, this is the thing I don't think people realise. Energy affects everything. You know, if we don't have cheap energy, we won't have jobs, we won't have industry, we won't have an economy. Uh, and, and that's one aspect of our energy security as a nation. But what about the more direct energy security question? You know, we're putting ourselves in a situation where we'll be dependent upon supply of wind and solar components from China, right? Solar panels and turbine blades. Whereas with nuclear, uh, we could be a lot more energy self-sufficient. Well, if you have, uh, if Australia gets told 
by by some other foreign power that we're very dependent on. Uh, we're in agreements with several with our closest allies, UK, US. Imagine if they said one day that, hang on, we have to start boycotting China for certain things. Um, that has implications for our resource exports. So that's not so much an energy security question there. But if there's some kind of um, retaliation in, well, China's going to stop sending us solar panels and, and wind turbines. Uh, I mean, these are sort of very simplified scenarios, but I imagine there's people thinking about it. So how are we meant to upgrade and if we're fully dependent on wind turbines and solar panels and batteries and 90% of that comes from China, how are we meant to maintain it and replace it over time? Yeah, it's really terrifying when you think about it. I don't have huge confidence in Chris Bowen to handle this. I really don't. It's scary stuff. That's Ben Beattie. Ben, thanks for joining us. Host of the uh, Australian energy podcast, The Baseload. Check it out. And a regular on the other side of Australia. And that's all we have time for for this week on The Other Side of Australia. Please like and share and tell your friends about the show. We really do need your support. And that is the best way that you can support us and help us keep the media landscape in Australia more diverse politically and have more diversity of opinion. The only diversity that should really matter. And join us on ADH TV at ADH.TV for all our great content. Alan Jones every Tuesday and Wednesday night. Alexandra Marshall, Daisy Cousins, Spectator TV, Nick Cater, fabulous show. Fred Paul, great show on Monday nights at 8 o'clock. And Professor David Flint and Dave Pello and oh, it's all there. You can download our app to your phone. Just search up ADH TV on Google Play or the Apple App Store or watch our live stream on YouTube anytime. There's heaps of ways to find us. Even on your TV, you can download the app to your TV as long as you don't have a Samsung. Uh, and we will catch you next weekend for our final episode of The Other Side Australia for 2023. You have a great week. We'll see you then.